You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for the busy GP. I'm Christina and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Associate Professor Anush Yazdani again about endometriosis. Welcome back Anush and thanks so much for giving up some more time. Uh, For those listeners that might have missed our last episode, Anush is actually a obstetrician and gynecologist with Eve Health and Queensland Fertility Group uh, based in Brisbane uh, with a specialisation in reproductive endocrinology endocrinology and infertility uh, and a reproductive endosurgeon. And he has very kindly given up some time to chat about endometriosis. If any of you missed it, we chatted last episode around uh, what it is and presentation and, and workup uh, and a little bit about sort of diagnostic surgery. We still had so much more to cover. So we've gotten Anush back this time to talk a little bit more about management. Anush, I wanted to move on to management, um, specifically sort of aiming this towards GPs in terms of the medical mm. intervention. So let's talk mm. about that and, and what you would generally start with and where you would work up. Of course. I think this is absolutely what I would expect GPs to do. This is uh, bread and butter for you guys. You actually do this so much better than lots of specialists, simply because, you know, sometimes specialists are an in and out, or I look, we're going to go and do surgery, whereas, in fact, you are much better at looking at the bigger picture. And certainly, when we talk about the management of endometriosis and the management of pain and the management of fertility, these complex conditions, it's actually about making this, and I'm going to borrow one of the buzzwords, you know, it's about making this person-centric or patient-centric. It's about the patient and her family and her expectations as to what you want to do. And we really need to focus on what their quality of life is, their daily activities, how much physical and psychosocial function they need and their relationships. So you guys are really good at that, whereas gynecologists or specialists often are, in fact, not. We're very outcome-focused. So if you have someone in front of you, and it really now depends on what the story is, but if the problem is, for example, pain, then one of the first things we would recommend is instituting simple analgesia. Now, As you know, in fact, often explaining that this is the problem and this is the issue and then instituting effective analgesia like any of the non-steroidals, this is very effective treatment and that may be enough to allow the patient to continue to the next element. Other patients will require hormonal management and the first-line management in this situation is still the combined oral contraceptive pill in Australia for those people who don't have any contraindications. Now, whether you use a continuous combined oral contraceptive pill or whether you use cyclical uh, treatment doesn't really matter to a huge degree. A continuous combined oral contraceptive pill has the advantage that you're avoiding menstruation completely and it gives some control back to the woman because she can then skip periods around essential elements and also plan, though, if if we need to have a period, to start taking something like the Nurofen or the Naproxen on the last day that you have your active pill. So at that point, then, you have the non-steroidals and the analgesia already on board by the time you start getting the pain. So it's all about preemptive analgesia as part of the management over here. 
Of course, which pill you pick depends very much on the side effect profile. And that's really the main difference between all the different oral contraceptive pills that we have on the market. In terms of their efficacy for management of endometriosis and, and menstrual pain, there's really not a huge difference between any of them. So I always recommend just become familiar with a couple of brands and so that you have a monophasic low-dose pill, a monophasic standard-dose pill, and a monophasic higher-dose pill. Be aware of the different progestogens in them and be prepared to alter your regimen. When we manage women with endometriosis and with pelvic pain, really you often need to change the pill as the woman grows. So I will use a very different, in the same patient, I will use quite a different pill when she's in her early teens compared to her later teens, to her 20s, to her 30s and her 40s. And you should be very happy to change that as she grows and as her needs change. That doesn't mean that the pill doesn't work. It just means that it needs to be altered. So I think the combined oral contraceptive pill is one of the first lines of treatment. The second line of treatment is really progestogens, and particularly for those patients who are not um, who are not able to use um, the oral contraceptive pill for one reason or another, or don't want to. And oral progestins such as Provera and norethisterone are the original medications that have been used for endometriosis, and in, in some countries, these are still recommended as the first line. Now, you need to remember that if you're going to use progestins such as Provera and norethisterone or Primalote, then you need to use them at relatively high doses in order to cause suppression. So 10 milligrams of Provera or 5 milligrams of Primalote is usually not enough to cause menstrual suppression reliably, unless we have someone who has a very low BMI and already maybe some hypothalamic dysfunction. So in that age, in, in that group, you probably need to use 10 or 20, milligram, uh, 20 milligrams of, uh, of Provera and at least 10 milligrams of norethisterone. And of course, as those doses build up, you wind up having more side effects that you don't want. Most of the progestins that we use are anabolic derivatives. So they do have some anabolic elements and also some androgenic elements. And the biggest one of those is, of course, weight gain. If we're using oral progestins and we're getting a good response from them, then the old medication that's still around, the original product, is still Depo-Provera. It is safe, it is effective, it is cheap, but a very small subset of patients will have problems and they are weight gain and mood disturbances. So I'd always use an oral form first in a higher dose of Provera, sort of 20 milligrams daily. And if they don't have any problems, you're not going to have any issues with Provera. Depo-Provera in Australia has received a little bit of a bad rap um, for a whole lot of different reasons. And it's not the best medication around for the management of endometriosis in the first line, but it's reliable contraceptive. It reliably causes amenorrhea. The problem with it, of course, is that it can sometimes take quite a long time to get out of the system again. So if you have a patient who's desiring fertility within the next year or two, I certainly wouldn't start them on Depo-Provera. In terms of the progestins, 
the next one that's available is certainly Implanon. Now, Implanon is not equivalent to Depo-Provera. It has quite a different mode of action. It does not reliably produce amenorrhea unless you have your uh, borderline hypothalamic or thin young patient who has some variability in her cycle already. In that situation, then you can actually get quite good amenorrhea through Implanon, but it's not a desired endpoint of Implanon. Its desired endpoint is contraception, but it does work for suppression of menstrual pain and it is effective in reducing pain, but don't use it as an equivalent to the other progestins. Mirena is the other medication that's often been used. And it's very effective in a subset of women, particularly in the women who are nulliparous. You just need to be aware that there can be some problems just simply because the uterus before there's been a pregnancy, before it's expanded, can sometimes, some patients can have some cramping. And of course, there's the risk of expulsion, which is much more likely in that group. If you've also got patients with persistent pain where there's been some sensitization because they've had pain for a very long period of time, Mirena is often not the first, the best first-line treatment. I think it's very effective. And in the majority of women, the nulliparous patients, it's still effective, but there's a higher chance of having to remove it. And that can be as high as 1 in 5 or 20%. If we're looking at the other progestins that are around, we have things such as Dynagest, okay, which is uh, which is around and is is a progestogen that's much more effective in terms of causing atrophy of uh, deposits. I think if you're going down to one of those new newer progestins, then probably that patient should be referred to an endometriosis unit or specialist treatment. And the same also goes for aromatase inhibitors, which are very effective, but need to be combined with progestins and GnRH analogs such as Zolodex. Danazole really has no role in the modern management of endometriosis anymore. And I think people should probably forget that as a first-line drug completely. We do sometimes still use it, but for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a drug that's no longer used. There are a number of new drugs on the horizon that may be quite effective. We've got some oral GnRH antagonists out there. And of course, as endometriosis has, has moved more into the spotlight, as all of you know, the cannabinoids are the new modality of treatment because they seem to have a specific effect, not only in pain, but in fact may also have a role in the secondary prevention of uh, endometriosis. So. If you're seeing someone, if there, if there are no contraindications, the oral contraceptive pill, whichever way you want to start it off is no problem. And progestins are the most appropriate second line, unless there's a contraindication for the oral contraceptive pill. But most important thing is review. See them again three months later. If they're having problems, you need to change treatment. If they're doing well, then that's a good established treatment and they don't need to be referred on. Yeah, excellent. So again, a really thorough framework there from how to start off and where to go when, when you start to encounter problems. 
So Anusha, another thing that I wanted to pick your brain about was actually complementary medicines in terms of managing endometriosis because, you know, we see this with with a few um, conditions, a few diseases is this move towards Mm. patients really seeking out alternative and complementary therapies. Mm. I wonder, you know, is there much evidence for this in terms of a treatment modality for endometriosis? I think it's a fascinating area and you're absolutely right. There is a large amount of complementary medicine and nutritional uh, medicine out there, particularly for things like endometriosis. You could spend an hour talking about why that is in the first place, but one of them, and that's become very clear now, is that it's the way that we have been managing these women. You know, I think we have not given people enough time. We haven't put them at the centre of the management. We haven't given them enough control over their own destiny. And that has meant that they've often gone to complementary practitioners who certainly from a specialist point of view have been much better at putting the patient into their own, into the context of their disease, if you like, and exploring their lifestyle and exploring their nutrition and exploring their family dynamics something that we don't necessarily do on every patient. And that's one of the reasons why patients have been driven to complementary medicine, because in fact, the evidence to support many complementary interventions is just not there. It's not that we don't have the evidence to say that we don't know, but in fact, in a number of interventions now, we know that there is no benefit, okay? But lots of women use them and lots of, lots of women move to alternative and nutritional interventions. The problem with the research in this area, of course, is that it's again limited for exactly the same reason that we talked about before in that there are limited diagnostic and there are limitations in the diagnosis. And so you're really not sure whether or not you're managing endometriosis and whether the impact of the nutrition is on endometriosis or whether the impact of uh, the complementary intervention is in fact on pain and pain management. And I think that's really, really important because they are different aspects. Lots of complementary medicines are very good in terms of relieving symptoms and managing pain, but they don't necessarily affect endometriosis okay so for example we know that chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture is very often used now the evidence that they actually have an impact on endometriosis as a disease itself progression from one stage to the next the pathology of the disease is very limited and all of the traditional and Uh, and I'm doing the inverted commas with my fingers as I'm talking over here, the traditional medications uh, don't seem to be any worse or any better than the the complementary medicines from that point of view. And their side effect profile is often not that different either. But impact on things such as pain is often better with complementary medicines. And again, it's hard to know whether or not this is actually an, an effect of the intervention or whether this is the practitioner that's providing the support. So as part of an endometriosis unit, we liberally use complementary interventions. So we do provide access to 
um, nutritional support, to dietary interventions, to uh, complementary medicines, but all within the framework of addressing what is going on in the patient and heard and giving us feedback of what works and what doesn't work. There are some patients who will have significant problems with taking time out to do half an hour of, uh, of Reiki. Others find this absolutely wonderful. So in terms of being able to say, look, this type of treatment, there is good evidence that it changes the pathology. It does not exist. But from a patient-centered point of view, many interventions actually work. And so we work closely with our colleagues in complementary medicine because they have a role in terms of managing their patients. The management of the pathology is a different situation, but that shouldn't detract from those interventions. Yes, that's a, a great perspective. And it's, it's, you know, it's something that I do reflect on a bit, especially for some things that we do have good evidence for in terms of Western medicine. And yet we still mm. see people sort of turning to some of these, you know, mm. again, in inverted commas, alternative practitioners or mm. roots. And, and I think, you know, that idea of that patient-centred approach and the, mm. the importance of the patient-practitioner relationship, which is so important. Mm. And if we don't get that right, often patients, it doesn't matter, we could be 100% correct in the medical intervention um, by the book, yeah. by the guideline, whatever it might be. But, you know, if we don't get that patient-practitioner relationship right and if we don't put the patient at the center of the conversation and really listen to what the problem is for them and then come up with a solution that's tailored to them they are likely to go and seek that from someone else Um, and it's interesting in in a day when we've got more and more and more and more evidence um, Mm. that we do have this movement of patients away from where that evidence lies Mm. Um, so I find that space very very interesting and I guess not just a a complementary medicine, you know, but something that is definitely complementary and something I think, you know, you mentioned Reiki and some of these kinds of things, but also just that, I guess, some of these things also provide sort of that mindfulness, you know, like that kind of psychological intervention as well, which yeah, can be correct. really powerful for a lot of the chronic pain, Absolutely you know, right. uh, conditions. So, you know, and for this as well, um, mm. sometimes getting that psychological support and that's not in no way to, I guess, undermine the woman or to sort of try and send her the message that this is all in your head or, you know, what have you, but it's actually psychological therapies are such an important part mm. of the picture, I I guess, in managing endometriosis for some women. Correct. One of the things that we have, as part of the National Action Plan for Endometriosis, we looked at whether or not we should be having centres of excellence in endometriosis surgery. And, you know, it's if you'd set up unimodal centres that only focus on one element, they will fail. So we have quite specifically stepped away from, from that because the evidence that they will help the patient in the end is actually not there. We need to look at this as a multifaceted approach. And we, we and by we, I mean reproductive endocrinologists and advanced uh, surgeons are good at some things, but we're not so good at others. And we all need to work together. And it's a multidisciplinary and a multimodal team that needs to help patients with pain. As you said, it's, it's about 
also addressing the high incidence of irritable bowel syndrome that happens in patients with endometriosis, almost 60%. It's the 30% that have uh, urinary dysfunction. It's the pelvic floor dysfunction. None of that will go away with one single intervention. Yeah, no, I, I love that approach, you know, that idea of getting the team. And it's it's hard to do in practice, isn't it? You know, with time constraints mm. and money it constraints is. and what it people is. can access in, in the public system versus in the private system. And Correct. it's challenging, but I think, you know, that's that's what we need to provide for our women to make sure yeah. that they get the best outcomes. And, and I think this is, this is one of the things where, you know, one of the problems for the rural and remote settings, particularly because women's health is so underfunded and requires such an element of commitment by someone out there is it we need to be really careful that we don't wind up with two classes of patients you know those who deserve treatment but can't get it because they just don't get access to it not because people don't want to provide it but because the resources are just not there and we're not funding people to allow them to do that and this will be one of our great challenges as we move beyond the COVID area with all of the financial implications that we will have, that we don't generate second-class citizens with diseases and disorders that could have been managed. Much yeah, better. gosh, we could keep talking about it all day, couldn't we? <laughs> no, I know, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely, I couldn't agree more with that. A lot of things that happen in medicine, I guess, you know, could have that same idea around the rural, regional mm. slash metro divide and the socioeconomic divide. Mm. <laughs> but I'll keep powering on with I wanted to, yep. to get to you. I know we, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to just ask quickly around surgery and when should we be referring women for yep. surgical, you know, for therapeutic intervention, I guess, um, you know, in terms of their endometriosis? So the first thing here is it's, it's that review process. So if you've instituted treatment and your patient is not responding or it's very reasonable to have your 16-year-old, and this is just an example, have her on the oral contraceptive pill, even if she has really quite significant pain, and to assess and see what, what happens. But if when you see her three to six months later and she hasn't responded, then that's a time to refer on. There is also a hierarchy within specialists in terms of what some specialists can do and some can't. I think from the point of view of the referring uh, doctor, I think you should not concern yourself too much with that. I think that's something that we manage internally in gynecology. So all gynecologists are trained to diagnose endometriosis and to manage it up to a certain level. And then we will then manage it onwards uh, from there. So if it goes beyond the level that somebody uh, would normally do, then they will internally refer that. So my my practice consists of 60% of my patients are tertiary referral from other gynecologists. Do I think I should have seen each one of them? Absolutely not. I think that's disastrous for the country. It's disastrous for the woman. And they are receiving excellent care in each of their communities. But a subset will need to be referred. And that's a matter for management of the gynecologists themselves. Um, in terms of what happens when they're referred, excisional surgery is probably the cornerstone of treatment and all gynecologists are trained in this to a certain extent, though ablation has a role in endometriosis management itself as well. 
But if the disease has been removed completely, we expect very low recurrence rates. So certainly what should not happen is the story of patients needing surgery every 12 months to see what's happening with their pain or even every two years. It just does not happen. Now, if you removed endo, the chance of it coming back or growing back if it's been optimally removed is probably quite low, probably less than one in 20 chance of it recurring. But it doesn't mean that the pain always goes away. But then the management of the pain is not to do another laparoscopy, not to do another surgery. The management then is to focus on where is the pain coming from? Is there secondary dysfunction? That's how we would manage it. So surgery, absolutely refer if conservative or medical treatment hasn't worked. And then the idea is that they have optimal surgical management and that will be managed by your gynecologist that you refer on to, that you refer to, who may or may not then refer on. But certainly it's not about having repeated surgery after surgery after surgery, because in fact, the incidence of recurrence is quite low for peritoneal or deep disease. At least. Yeah, which is really good to hear you say that, the, you know, the recurrence rate should be low if it's done correctly, I guess. Very low. And I think that's it. It's not the start of a merry-go-round of multiple yeah. procedures if you refer someone on. I think if that happens and something's wrong, um, something else is going on. We certainly do not do repeat patient surgeries all over the time. It's about managing the patient as an individual, like we said a number of times already. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I think I'm going to have to bring it to an end. We started off (laughs) thinking we'd get this into one episode, but this has just been such great information. So I'm really um, glad that we've just kept going and been able to provide our listeners with such great information on on this topic and hopefully, you know, a good refresher and just expanding on some of that knowledge to optimise the management for their women that they they see in their everyday practice. So thank you so much, Anush. I really appreciate it. So many thanks to you for bringing this to our GPs. And this is such a great, important step for our women. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. Welcome.